So let's open in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today, for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for your son Jesus, who died upon the cross. Help us never to lose sight of that. And I love those words when you said it was time to go. You said it was necessary to go, that you would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, another of the same kind. We ask for that comfort today. We ask for that illumination today that only you can bring. So we commit this time to you. In the most precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today I've titled the message, Man of God. I usually try, when I pick a title, it's very generic. It may seem it comes from the text itself. Because what you need to hear is not my words. What you need to hear is the word of God. And we need to let our spirits connect with his spirits. We need to see where this word comes from and that this word is timeless, is pertinent. It's applicable today as much as it was 2,000 years ago. It is the living word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So my question is, how often do you hear the Word of God? One of the things I like to do is I like to read aloud and let the words fall upon my ears. For those that have a, uh, a phone, one of these uh, smartphones, you don't have to be real smart to use them, but if you have a smartphone, they have apps that you can listen to the Bible on. They're great when you're driving that you can play it over and over and over again and marinate your mind with the Word of God. The best teriyaki is what kind of teriyaki has been marinated a while. And when you marinate your mind with the Word of God, it becomes a part of you and it becomes a part of your flesh. And what happens is you begin just to walk in the Spirit not even being aware of it, you're in the Spirit. Because this Word has become a part of you. Well, our text today is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 14. I title it, The Man of God, but I'm going to add something to that part 1, because next week we're going to look at part 2, A Man of God. Let's read our text together. It says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that the man of God is in that first verse, but flee these things, you man of God. Now, a little side note, I sometimes watch, or I shouldn't say watch, but listen to Squirrely News. No, that's not the name of it. But a few weeks ago, there was a big thing about Berkeley, the mayor, decided that they couldn't call a manhole cover 
a manhole cover. You know what a manhole cover is? In the street they climb down. Just in case a woman went down that hole, they could not call it a manhole cover. And this man of God, while it's speaking about Timothy here, we're going to see, who is a man of God, a woman can be a man of God generically, and I hope you don't take that personally, that I have to say the woman of God. But you are a man and a woman of God. And we're going to look at those things that apply to this man of God, and I'm going to speak generically because that's what the Bible says. Because when you're in Christ, you're neither male or female. You're neither Jew or Gentile. You are one. And God sees the heart, and that's what's important. Now, just as we saw in 2 Thessalonians, if you remember when we were going through that book, um, we saw the man of sin, you remember. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says this, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes his seat at the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Now, just the opposite of this man of sin We see the man of God. Our goal is not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. In the kingdom, the way up is the way down. That we're servants of one another, we're submissive to one another. We lay our lives aside. We deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily. It is a different way than the world. We're not offended by things that are said in the world. And if we are, we recognize that we're self-centered, focused upon ourselves. And that's like God peeling a layer back and saying, this is an area I want you to deal with. You want to experience the fullness of joy, the abundant joy, then you need to deny yourself. You need to not think about yourself. You need to esteem others higher than yourself. This is where you and I find joy, when we're esteeming others higher than ourselves. So we're going to be looking at this man of God. It's simple. It's immeasurably. And as I looked at this more, as I went through, and different translations will have it different, the man of God is mentioned 78 times, primarily in the Old Testament, Moses is the first one that's mentioned a man of God. But if you stop and think about it, to even be called a man of God, it is the greatest privilege, yet it carries a great and awesome responsibility. Because a man of God is, what it's saying is, you are God's own possession. Not as the world wants to possess and control somebody, God wants to give you life and give you more abundantly. God wants the, the best for you. And it's a different situation. But, but to be a child of God, how awesome is that? To be adopted, to, to be put into the, the body of Christ. That you have a Savior that will never leave you or forsake you. That when you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He separates your sin as far as the east and west and chooses never to remind you of that. That isn't how the world does it, is it? 
They're always quick to remind you what you did yesterday, last month, last year, 10 years, 20 years ago. But not God. He sees you just as you've never sinned. You become His workmanship. He begins that work in you, and one day He will finish that work and complete that work in you, and you will be perfect without any sin, and you will never sin again. Isn't that precious? You cannot find that in the world. This man of God is applied, as I mentioned, to Moses first. In Deuteronomy 33.1, notice what it says now. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. The man of God, one thing I notice about him, he's always blessing others. When you leave this place, my, my prayer, my desire, is that you go out and you bless this world, that your life is a blessing when you run into people, whether they're believers or not believers, that they're so thankful that you're there, your encouragement to them when they're discouraged, when they seem hopeless, you are the one that brings hope. You're the one that puts a smile on their face. This only happens when you are a man, and I'm going to add that, or that woman of God. When you have that joy of God, that love of God. Now there's something important to think about that each morning, the very first thing you do, whether morning to you is 4 a.m. or 9 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it does not matter. But when you get up, that you spend that time with the Lord and you receive that love from Him. Because you cannot give what you do not have. You need that love of God. That love that is pure, it's unadulterated. It's a love that sets upon you, not based upon whether you're good or bad. It's a love that will change you and transform you gently, tenderly, lovingly, and one day he'll finish that work in you. And that is precious. Although the phrase man of God is, is commonly used in the Old Testament, here it describes Timothy. And only in the New Testament, Timothy, man of God. Paul uses it really to increase this sense of responsibility, to discharge this ministry. Remember, he's left in Ephesus. Ephesus is this very immoral, impure town. It was, it was a town full of many different gods who were not gods at all. A pagan environment, driven by money, driven by sexual pleasures. And, and Timothy is put in here to be the pastor, to, to be the example, to be the light in that community. And when people come out of the world, some people instantly change. I mean, overnight, they're just transform but sometimes it takes a while to get the world out of a person have you noticed that in your own life there's some things that very quickly change but sometimes something will come out of your mouth and you don't know where it comes from but well, the world's still in you and he's still working in you and it's a wonderful thing think about what i'm going to say it's a wonderful thing when the world comes out of you and you go where does that come from you know why it's wonderful? 
because you recognize that capacity is still in you and how much you need Jesus Christ in your life. And when you confess your sins, again, as I mentioned earlier, he's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Again, 2 Timothy, notice 3, 16 and 17. Notice what he says. All scripture is inspired, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So here's the, the word of God is, is going to work in you. What is it going to do? Well, it, it, the purpose that it, it's profitable for teaching reproof is to show you what's wrong in your life, is to show you how to change that and to train you in righteousness so you'll be adequately equipped for every good work. That means the God of who creation, who spoke the world into existence, said, let there be light was light, has chosen you to be a part of something much bigger than you could ever imagine, that he uses you in the life of someone to bring them into the kingdom, to, to bring encouragement and hope and love to other people. And when we do this, remember, we're not thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about others. I've oftentimes gone to the hospital, gone to be with somebody, and I'm, I want to go there to encourage them. And you know what I, I find so often is true? I'm the one that comes back encouraged. Those believers, those men and women of God who have trusted God faithfully, allowed the word of God to work in their life when I'm there, they know they're going to meet the king. They know the moment they close their eyes that they're going to see him. There's a story of a, a woman who was blind. And a guy come up and says, oh, I, I, I'm sorry that you're blind. You, you have this disability. And he went on with all these stories. She says, I don't have a disability. Why? Well, I, I'm sorry, you've never seen a, a rainbow or you've never seen a sunrise. She says, you know, when my eyes are opened, when they'll be opened, the first thing I'll see in my life is Jesus Christ. I'm longing for that moment to see him. I see him in my spirit. I know him in my spirit, but I will see him face to face. And the first thing you saw was just this world. The best is yet to come. Her spirit had connected. That's what happens. The man and woman of God, their spirit is connecting. Jesus says, if you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. If you come in here in anticipation, inspect, expecting to meet with him, removing the distractions, and the enemy will throw them at you, believe me, you know that. And you just sit at his feet. You will meet with him. He'll minister to you. And he'll use you to minister to someone else. And there's no greater joy. Look with me in 1 Timothy 1.18 and through 20. It says, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And that's important. That's going to be part of our text. We're going to see in a few minutes. Keeping the faith. It is a fight to keep the faith. 
The world is trying to distract you from keeping your eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. If you're married and you come to church, I don't know how many times, but when you come to church, oftentimes there is a battle in the car, getting out of the house, and that is the enemy distracting you because he does not want you to worship God. So it is a fight. So fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience. I'm going to change that word good, and we want to keep a good conscience. We, we want a sincere conscience, but we want a clear conscience, a clean conscience. And the only way you do that is keep your eyes upon Jesus Christ, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. He goes on in verse 20. I'm not going to read it at this point, but he, he describes again those who have left the faith. It is a, a fight to keep the faith. In a physical sense, you fight. But you know what? You're kept by the power of God. The fight is, will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you rest in him? There's a quote I, I like. It says, if you've, if you've come to fight, you come to the wrong place. If you choose not to fight with people, they're not, they can't fight. They're going to give up on them. Or somebody is you know, mad at you and, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How can they fight with you? Sometimes fighting the good fight is humbling yourself. Saying you're wrong. Is it easy to say, I'm wrong? With a husband and wife, it is so often. Our pride gets in our way. Our reaction, and our pride prevents us saying, you know, I was wrong. I just spouted out. Would you forgive me? What can I do to make it right? There is a battle in this life. At the beginning of that verse, he says, this command I entrust you with, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Look with me in First Timothy 4. 14 through 16, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Jump down to verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself, to your teaching, and preserve, persevere in these things. For as you do them, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear. Now he's speaking to Timothy as a pastor, but every one of us are a leader in some capacity. You're a leader in your family. You're a leader in your workplace. There's someone that is watching you. The command works for you and me. Each one of us have some kind of spiritual gift. You have at least one gift, if not more, two, three. And sometimes I find in most cases they're on the need to know basis. You don't walk around with the uh, this gift of wisdom all the time, or the gift of knowledge, or whatever it is. But I find that God gives that right gifting, that ability at the right moment. Know and believe, God, you've given it to me before. Use me. Only for the glory of God, though. Not for selfish reasons. He's saying, Timothy... This is important. It's your responsibility to God and to yourself and those that you minister to, those that you teach, those that you come in contact with. This world is in a hopeless situation. You have the hope. You are proof 
when you're living in the Spirit, that there is good news if they know your past life. You are hope for the hopeless in that sense that you bring them to Jesus Christ. First by your example and your words, your actions. And then you open your mouth. Now remember, we're to be ready in season and out of season, and certainly that's talking about preaching the Word of God. But whenever you are, you are to be ready in season to share the very Word of God, the words of hope, the words of encouragement. You are a man of God. You are a woman of God. You know what God has done in your life. If you remember that first Sunday after Thanksgiving, we have a a Thanksgiving potluck. Bring your turkey. But what's significant about that day is we have a, a Thanksgiving service in the sense we have one day a year, we have our testimony service. What has God done in your life this year? Because if we didn't say this year, the first person to get up here would be here 20 years later. Are you aware of what God has done in your life? He has literally snatched you out of the flames and fire of hell and given you life abundantly. Now hang on to it. He's given you life and that your life would be more abundantly, but we're going to see in our text that you need to take a hold of that eternal life. Some people here today can have said all the right buzzwords, said a a sinner's prayer, and never taken a hold of their eternal life. Week after week, whether it be this church, another church, and never experienced God himself. And God comes here. He meets here every week. This is a point in time we meet with him. And we should come to meet with him. Now, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people want to be teachers. Now, we're all going to teach in some capacity, but it's important that, Timothy, you understand this responsibility. You're put in this place. You're a pastor. You're a a teacher. You're a shepherd. Watch over the flock of God. Don't lord over them, Peter would say. But there's many that want to be teachers. I like what James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. See, while it's an awesome responsibility, you will be accountable for that. You are accountable just for knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he's called you. He's called you, snatched you out of the flames of fire. He's opened your heart and your mind. He's given you gifts. He's given you abilities. What are you doing with the life? Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day for rewards. You'll either receive a reward or they'll be all burned up. You'll still enter into heaven with the stench of smoke going in. You'll be in heaven. But the person that realizes the awesome responsibility and the joy of bringing the truth to someone, to encouraging someone, is the most wonderful thing. Well, let's look at our text. Man of God is is known by what he flees from. That's in verse 11. 
It says, but flee from these things, you man of God. Now, that, that word, it says it begins with but, is coupled with the pronoun you. But you, Timothy, sharp contrast to those false teachers that we've been talking about. There's this contrast. Flee from these things. Flee from what the false teachers do. We've been looking at that. Now, think about the comparison of these false teachers that we're talking about and compare it to Timothy. First of all, they were men of money. They loved money. And yet, Timothy, he's a man of God. He, he's, he's not in love with the money. The money doesn't have control on him. But they're doing it for the money. He's simply a man of God. The second thing I want to call your attention to, he's a man of sin, or they're, they're sinful men. But Timothy, he's a righteous man. Righteous, is, it's interesting, we're going to look at it more, but it means a right standing with God in most cases. They're men of the world, but Timothy is a man of heaven. His heart is in heaven. He knows where he's going. He has that assurance of heaven. First John was written that you might know that you have eternal life, and that eternal life is in the Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know today that you have eternal life? Ask yourself, do you know? If you close your eyes in this world, will you be in heaven with Jesus? And if so, why? And if you cannot say that you, have, you know for sure, then I want to see you before you leave today because I can give you that assurance that if you close your eyes in this world, you fall asleep in Christ, you, you open your eyes to see Jesus Christ. And God wants you to know that. Some churches do not teach that. But yet that is what the Bible says. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. How can you have peace if you do not know where you're going to go when you die? The man of God must never forget. Ne never forget that there's certain things in his life that must be avoided. We have to make that decision right away. I'm going to avoid these things. This, this is what we do naturally. Oh, it may be like 2 plus 2 is 4, and 4 plus 4 is 10. No, 8, isn't it? You understand what I'm saying? That we may start this way, but pretty soon you don't even think about it. You just do these things natural. There's certain things we avoid. Now, the, the word flee, it's interesting because it's what we call a present imperative. It means keep on fleeing. Flee habitually from these things. It's a continual choosing to turn away. That temptation is there until the day. But you will have temptations until the day you die. You have to choose. I'm not going to be a part of that. If there's something that's going to stumble you in your life, it's going to be different for you than someone else. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's politics. Boy, I've seen people have fistfights over politics. You just need to turn away. So Timothy is to make it a habit of continually fleeing from things. It's the same thing. Don't go to a place that's going to stumble you. If you have a problem with alcohol and you can't turn away from it, well, don't go there and say, I can deal with it. Maybe you have a problem with ice cream. Anyone have a problem with ice cream? We can't bring it in the house without 
devouring it the first night almost, okay? We're just going to have one scoop each. It never ends. The scoops get bigger and bigger. Gail Irwin told the story one time that, you know, he had a problem with ice cream, so he goes in the grocery store, and he walks by the ice cream aisle, and he says, I'm going to show the ice cream that I can resist it, and he walks back and forth. And then he says, well, I can put the ice cream in my cart, show it I can take it home even, and I won't even eat it. It'll just be there in the freezer. Well, in the end, going to the end, he just took his spoon out and they ate the whole thing at once. You, you think you can do something, and if it's a weakness, you avoid it, you flee from it, you don't go there. And if you have a friend, a companion, and you know they have a temptation, don't go there, avoid it. Don't do anything that will stumble your brother or your sister. Take them along with you to heaven, not to hell. So Timothy, make it a habit in your life. Continually fleeing away from the, in this case, the fondness of money. That's what the false teachers were. It should be the lifestyle of every believer. Money's a tool. You, you have to make those decisions in advance. We have to be wise. God's man must flee. Scripture is clear. Sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6. Idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. Youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2.22. Passage after passage in the Bible, there are things that you and I are to flee. Till the day God takes us out of these bodies, we will have problems. We have to choose to flee. And also flee in a sense that we will not cause others to stumble. 1 Timothy 6, 8, I mean, excuse me, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says this, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. We saw that in our text earlier last week. And some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. These are apostates. And they pierced themselves with many griefs. Good example of that, if you remember, was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, then was guilty with remorse, threw the silver back and went and hung himself. But he never had the godly sorrow that led him to repentance. And he ended in hell. Money. The man of God has a different way of thinking. Notice Acts 20, verse 33 and 34. It says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Paul was what was called a tent maker. He was a missionary going, but he, would, he was always willing to be working. If it meant working and instead of taking, which he was entitled to take money from people for to pay for the ministry, but if it was going to stumble him, he chose not to stumble the people. And he worked with his own hands day and night as an example. That he brought this gift, it was free to them. And he was willing to sacrifice himself that they would come to know the king. 
Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so that none or not to be burdened to any of you. We proclaim the gospel. This is God's man, what he does. He'll carry the weight upon his own shoulders so it won't stumble somebody else. He will do everything he can to glorify God. Well, there's something else I want to call your attention to in verse 11. It's a man of God is known for what he follows. Notice again it says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance and gentleness. Now look at first at the word pursue. That, that word is commonly used in, in like an animal, and you've probably seen them on, on TV, stalking another animal. Wanting to, to, to they're going to take that animal, they're, they're going to charge that animal and get it, so they stalk and they watch for that right time and then they attack. We need to pursue, to lock our eyes on, to follow, to be single-minded. That, that one that is stalking has a single-mindedness, single-focused. It involves such a determination, persistence, all of our energy. It's purposeful that we are going to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. While every one of us have a gift here, a spiritual gift, it's not about the gifts. Those gifts are to edify the body, but what it's about is godly character. This godly character glorifies God more than anything else. When you are a righteous person, when you are a person of faith, without faith it's impossible to please him. And those who come to him must believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's this godly character that's so important in the life of every believer. This is what makes a man or a woman of God with the godly character. Now the idea behind all this is to follow again with that single-mindedness. Well, we have a simple verse for that. Matthew 6, 33. Anyone know that? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will add all things. He's the provider of every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above the Father of lights. He knows your needs. I think I need a lot of stuff. He teaches me I don't need much. What I do need is Him. Amen? Because only He can satisfy. So let's look at these six things. Christians must follow and they must follow in righteousness. Now, righteousness is in the Bible 309 times. Anytime you see something repeated so many times, that is very significant. God repeats himself 309 times. Now, there's three types of righteousness. Now, the first type is the essential attribute of God. It, it speaks of who God is. One of the things he is, well, he is righteous in himself. Everything that he does is righteous. It's pure it's holy and just. And one day, I, I, I would like to do a, a thing on a Sunday morning, just the attributes of God. Try and make it very devotional. Next week, we're going to look at some of those things. But just to really study who God is, it's just amazing 
how the Bible reveals who he is, his, his character, how the psalmists write about, again, the character of God. They know, and they know because they come to know him in a personal, intimate way, and that's what he wants with you, an intimate relationship. Just as you're sitting beside a, a friend or companion today, it's so good to be there. And you know they're there. Or your kids are in the other room. And you just know they're in the bed. Everyone's in the house. There's that, that feeling. God wants to be that close, but closer. That you're so aware of Him every place you go. Well, the second type of righteousness is a, a positional righteousness. The moment that you believe and trust in Him, you're declared righteous in His sight. Oh, you're a stinker, just like me. He'll finish that work in you, we know, but that's your positional righteousness because you've acknowledged your sinfulness and need of Him. He imputes His righteousness to you and He declares you righteous. My righteous woman of God. What an awesome thought that He sees you right with him. Because of that, you can boldly go to that throne of grace. So the, the third thing is a practical righteousness. Now I want to back that up with a scripture, 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See, the man of God, what he does is he walks in righteousness. He practices righteousness. He has that discernment that tells you what is right or wrong. That's where that, that good conscience, that clear conscience is, that we don't do anything to sear it, that we're guided by it. Now, the second thing I want to call your attention to is godliness. Now, godliness means to, to live in a reverence and awe of God. Now, please bear with me for a second and, and, and think about what I'm saying because sometimes we're, we can be flippant. Do you know what I mean by flippant? We go through life and something's on sale. Praise God. We just flippantly say things. But what we're talking about here is live in reverence. It means... You're standing a holy ground in the sense that you're standing before the God of all creation. He sees you. He knows you. And we're going to walk respectfully. We don't want to do anything that misrepresents Him. There's an awe of God. You remember when you were first born again? How could God ever choose a person like me? Me? Why would he die for me? Book of Revelation, if you remember, Revelation chapter 2, they, they had all their doctrine right, but they left that first love. They left the awe. They forgot what he did for them. We should have an awe of God. He created this world. He spoke into existence he died for me and you when you were in your worst. There's nothing that you have ever done in his life that ever surprised him. Anything that you could ever do that you cannot be forgiven except for that continual rejection of him in Jesus Christ. He is a God of love that is so amazing. 
we should be in awe. Every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of his, his promises are true and they're amen. Now, the idea here means to, to live seeking to be like God himself. To seek to po- possess his very character, his very nature, the, the behavior of God. Godliness is like Christ-likeness. When you see someone, you recognize they must be a Christian. That's the Christ-likeness. There's something about them. That's what godliness is. It reflects who God is. The idea of what I'm trying to say is you're Christ-like. That's our identity is with Christ. Nothing else in this world. Christ. That's godliness. Notice the third thing is faith. Sinners are justified by faith in Romans chapter 5. Justified by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you'll be kept unto him that day by simply believing in him. There's a difference, however, between saving faith and sustaining faith. There's a saving faith where you put your faith and trust and rest in him. But again, there's this sustaining faith that you need every day to keep you through the most difficult situations. When things just don't make sense. He'll sustain you through life. And you you know, I have a lot of friends that quit watching the news, dude. The news is the most depressing thing. The world is getting hopeless, and there's some people that are hopeless. But for us, there's hope. You know what's going to happen. You know how it's going to end. Sustaining faith involves a, a daily walk as a child of God. You're a child of God. You, you walk in dependence upon him. Like a little child, when, when you're young, you take your kids for a walk, and, and, and you're holding their hand and standing on the corner, and they want to run out in the street, and, and you're holding them. Your God, your Savior is holding on to you, sustaining you, and you know that. And you know you need Him, and you need Him every day. You know, when you read the Word of God, it's God speaking to you. Well, there's the love. The love here in this case is the agape love. It's, it's God's love that's produced in our life. It's the love that we can experience. It's a, a, a sacrificial love that God gave himself. And when he pours it into hearts, then we can love in that same capacity. Then there's patience. Anyone need patience here? Practice patience? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one. But you know, that comes through just that sustaining faith, just trusting in God. It comes through the the great crisis in life. And if you have a problem with patience now and you're not having a crisis, let me encourage you, there's a crisis coming. It, It does. It's the only way you learn these things and go through it. And you know that your faith is real. And you know that he was the one that took control of your life and sustained you through those difficult times. And that's important to understand. That patience means you remain under the the pressures of life. Because you know that God's in control and God's sovereign. And he says that all things work for the good for those that love the Lord and called according to his purpose. I'm repeating what you already know in some of these verses, but when you're going through those difficult times... This is marinating your mind with this. And this is what's going to sustain you. 
during these times because the Holy Spirit brings these scriptures to mind and he comforts you, encourages you, and reminds you of his faithfulness to you. And then there's gentleness and meekness. And you probably heard it said that meekness is not weakness, but it's rather power under control. Humility. Humility. The best way for humility is not to think about yourself. That's hard, isn't it? I I think about myself all the time. I get in the mirror, I put my little spray to try and hold the hair down. I brush my teeth. (laughs) Not the best teeth. But, you know, you want to look your best. We do. Stop and think about it. We're worried about what people think about us. Think about all those people around you. They're very fickle, aren't they? They love you one day and hate you the next day. So the man of God is also known by what he fights for. Look with me in verse 12. Fight the good fight of fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life to which you were called and you are made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Well, the fight, the good fight, is it's a metaphor, again, for an athlete competing in the games. Like runners running and stretching and, 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 and really pressing on. To run from a real danger is, is, is common sense. But to run from issues we don't want to deal with, not face, that's escapism. The man of God is not looking to escape. He knows that God will keep him through that trial. He's willing to go forward, press on, to confront what needs to be confronted with. And I'm not talking about arguing, I'm not talking about fighting, but to stand up. To face whatever it is that you have to face to deal with. Not avoid. The word fight, uh, it focuses both on defense and it speaks of spreading, uh, again, the, the biblical doctrine of redemption, bringing salvation, the words of hope and life. It's standing for the truth and bringing it, willing to share it with those that need to hear. Sharing with your neighbor. If your neighbor chooses not to hear, then you politely don't cram it down his throat. But you look for an opportunity to share. The enemy will try and get you not to share, not to deal with some, not to avoid things. The imperative is based upon an imagery of a, an athlete is just to agonize, to press on even when you're uncomfortable and you don't want to. It involves strategy, but it involves strength and stamina to, to continue. Colossians one twenty nine says this, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power. Notice it's striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. Remember, the battle's the Lord's. He's the one that will give you the strength. He's the one who will sustain you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, you know the passage well, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. 
Do you not know that those who run a race all run? But only one who receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win everyone who competes in the games, exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but you an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make, make it a slave so that afterwards I preach to others. I myself am not disqualified. You and I are to go and make disciples. That's the fight. We're, we're so worried about sharing our faith with others. We're afraid they might not speak to us. They might not like us. And we talked about, you don't do it at work. Take and rob you, your boss of time. But you look for those opportunities. You share with people. This is what a person, a man, a God does. 2 Timothy 4.7, notice what it says. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. There's going to be a day that we're going to meet with the Lord. How would you respond in that time? Did you fight that good fight? Did you finish the race, the course that God's given you? Since the gospel truth, it's good to proclaim it. It's to stand up for it. Not be ashamed of it. It's important. Notice the nature of the command. It's imperative. Take a hold in, a, in the idea of a, a physical seizure of eternal life. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is why 12 disciples turned the world right side up. How the church grew. They simply believed God. and They were willing to die and go to the cross. Those that you have the scripture today, they were willing to sacrifice themselves. If you lose your life here, you will gain your life in eternity. And this is what's important. Now, the, the seizure, it's, it's actually physically grabbing your life. It's not saying a sinner's prayer and you're saved and everybody cheer you on. You have to choose to live this eternal life. You have to grasp it. You have to choose to be in the Word, in the fellowship of the saints, to deal with things you don't want to deal with. You know, if the Bible says something, you don't flip the page and hide from it. Lord, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to do? 1 Timothy 6.12 says this, say we must fight the good fight. He says, say we must fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life to which you were called. You were called to this light. You were prepared for this. You're giving the gifts, you're giving the abilities, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does that mean? It could be at a baptism. You're confessing that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that you're a sinner in need of him. It's confessing to your friends, not ashamed of the faith. If you deny him before the world, Jesus says, I'll deny you before my Father. It's a choice. But the one that denies him before the world is what we call apostate. They hear, they know the truth, but they walk away from the truth. They're more worried what others think than what God thinks. They don't value their life because they just chose death by rejecting. John 5 24 says, As truly I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has, notice, has eternal life, 
and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When does eternal life begin? Right the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. The moment you believe. It is the very life of God in which the believer can share this moment of regeneration. It's important. If you've been born again, you have Christ. And Christ has you. This is what we confess to the world. Now, to know what you believe and know what you don't believe is very important. It only takes the seed the size of a mustard seed of faith to believe. But as a believer, you'll come to know who Jesus is completely. What He's done for you. What's right and what's wrong. How to get right and how to stay right. This is what He teaches you. And it's important that you get in the Word, that you hide that Word in your heart. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word. As I started, that's important. That's what believers do. Now John 17.3 says this, This is eternal life that you may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So eternal life is, is not just knowing what he did, but knowing him personally, intimately. I don't always do altar calls. I do them when I feel that God is, is, is calling me to do one, leading me to do one. One time I did an altar call. I'll never forget it. No one came forward. But I felt in my heart, I felt in my mind, my whole presence, if God was calling somebody that morning. As God was grieving, I felt it in my body that was moving through me. God shares His heart with each every one of us if we let Him in. Man oftentimes doesn't want to let people get real close to them. God wants to be a part of you in every way. Please do not reject Him. He wants all of you. He is a consuming God. And He wants the best for each and every one of you. First Timothy, Timothy again was called. Called by God to salvation. What does it mean to be called? Well, look with me, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to His image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among believers. These whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. That's the finished work in you and me. Second Timothy, you know, the second thing I want to call about Timothy is his good confession, profession. He was not ashamed to say who he believed in and what he's done for him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That means an instantaneously that you've been converted, that you've been born again, and you can be a man and woman of God if you take a hold of this eternal life. 
See, God has done his part. He sent his son to die upon the cross for you and me. But now we believe by faith, we apprehend this, and now we choose to live by faith in this life. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. The man of God is known by what he's faithful to. He picks and chooses his fights very well, but he's willing to fight the good fight of faith. I'm pleading with you today. If you have not apprehended the eternal life that he offers today, you need to take a hold of him. You need to take a hold of that life. You need to believe that he saved you. And he's wanting to change you and transform you. He's wanting to give you the power to face those things that you need to go through that you can fight that good fight. See, the battle is the Lord's, not yours. He will stand with you. He will go before you. And we do this to win. Until he comes. It's interesting I looked at a thing I shared with the guys earlier when we were praying. And if you want to pray, uh, come 8.30. We pray in the room over there. Men, women, we pray for the service. We pray for the community. We pray for the other churches. But I was sharing afterwards, and this is important to understand, uh, a book that was written a couple years ago, 25 Reasons We're in the End Times. And I thought about this. It was written two years ago. There's at least five more reasons today. We're that much closer to him coming. And I can list them all, and it's incredible. I don't know when he's coming. The question is, are you going to be ashamed at his coming? Are you going to be ashamed at his coming? Or will you hear those words, good and faithful servant? Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word that encourages and challenges us. We thank you that we're encouraged that we can be men and women of God and, and it's you that will sustain us and keep us and, and even provoke us down that path. You even give us the faith to act according to your will. Lord, we know what you have done for us, but Lord, if there's anyone here today that is not apprehended, that eternal life is not assured of it. Lord, I ask that you'd speak to your heart, that you would draw them to yourself today, to come forward today before they leave. Whether they come forward at the end of this song or they come and see one of us before they leave, we want to know that they can know that they have eternal life today. So Lord, go before us. Be honored in our lives. All God's people said, Amen.